people that are leptin resistant actually burn fewer calories when they're relaxed, doing nothing, and definitely during physical exercise. And again, like I said, it creates this increase in appetite. And it's because the body thinks it's starving because that's leptin's message, even when plentiful food is available. So all of these obviously contribute to weight gain. And then if I have insulin that's basically saying, hey, I'm going to store fat first, I'm going to make more fat cells, so therefore I'm going to make more leptin. And instead of burning sugar, I'm going to bring sugar to the fat cells to store. And if I do put sugar into the regular muscle cells and brain cells and everything else to actually burn, I'm going to need more and more insulin to do it. Leptin gets really, really dysregulated. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. So welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I'm going to go into a deeper dive about two hormones that I believe don't get the fanfare that they deserve around why we may gain weight, why our hunger and satiety may be dysregulated. And if we don't address these hormones, it may be part of the underlying cause. And I think these hormones are definitely playing a role. And especially when everybody's doing all the right stuff to resolve insulin resistance, these hormones are often still out of whack. So, you know, insulin resistance is when insulin, whose job is to basically shuttle your fat into the fat cells or to help you take sugar to the cell to burn when you need it. That's insulin's job. And when we become insulin resistant, we no longer listen to insulin. And so it becomes louder and louder and louder. And the cells stop taking sugar into burn. And then we get this exceptional sending of all of our caloric intake as fat to the fat cells. So, Leptin becomes resistant at the same level often with insulin. So if you're struggling to lose weight, it might be because you actually have leptin resistance and leptin plays a role in regulating energy intake and expenditure. And it is a messenger to the brain. And when the brain doesn't properly receive the leptin signals, it can obviously lead to weight gain, hormonal imbalances, and unfortunately also increased appetite. And so leptin is made by your fat cells. And its level increases with the increase in body fat stores. So we start to get more and more leptin production as we put more and more body fat on. And here's the thing. So when leptin levels are high, it signals to the brain to reduce hunger and create satiety. Leptin resistance occurs when leptin signals are not properly received anymore by the brain. This results in increased hunger and cravings, despite the fact that the leptin levels are high. So As you're fasted, leptin levels should climb to instruct the body to create this hunger, reduce the hunger, and reduce satiety. But when it's high like that all the time, you don't get that message and it starts to dysregulate. So what are the symptoms of leptin resistance? What I often see is that leptin resistance will result in increased hunger and particularly snacking behavior. We see a lot more of that, particularly in the evening. So I find that my people, when we do their lab work and we're looking at 
their leptin levels and they're significantly higher than what they're supposed to be. And what the research shows is that the higher your BMI goes, which is a height weight ratio. So the higher the BMI, the more body fat you have on you relative to your height and your weight. In many cases, sometimes somebody can be, you know, a bodybuilder has a lot of muscle who might be lean, but overweight compared to their peers. But the majority of us, if we are heavier and have a higher BMI, it's because we've got more body fat. What I often see is that person has that sort of snacking behavior at night. And then as their body weight goes up, it tends to go higher and higher. And so the studies show that the higher the BMI, the higher the resting leptin rate can go. And it's dysregulated more as you gain more weight. So leptin resistance can cause weight gain by lots of different ways. So first off, the signals don't get received. So it's like the hypothalamus isn't listening and it doesn't get the message. And so it doesn't respond. So then the body just tells basically every hormone and everything, hey, I need to store fat first. Go ahead and eat more and save more. And so this is essentially the body holding on to energy in the case of famine. So leptin is one of our major mechanisms to allow us to make it through famine. And so leptin resistance decreases energy expenditure. So we get more fat storage, hold on to more opportunities for energy and, oh, decrease energy expenditure. So if you find yourself snacking on the couch after dinner and you just don't feel like you can stop and you also don't feel like you can get off the couch, it's actually because leptin slows energy expenditure. So it actually makes you slower. It slows the metabolism down, slows energy burn down. Most people that are leptin resistant actually burn fewer calories at rest and during physical activity. So if you have leptin resistance, you may be working out and I don't care what the treadmill shows or all of those silly sort of, you know, caloric readers that you see on the cardio equipment. Those things are horribly inaccurate. Your aura rings might be a little bit better, but let's face it, they're not that darn accurate because they're using calculated algorithms. They're not reading your actual caloric burn. People that are leptin resistant actually burn fewer calories when they're relaxed, doing nothing, and definitely during physical exercise. And again, like I said, it creates this increase in appetite. And it's because the body thinks it's starving because that's leptin's message, even when plentiful food is available. So all of these obviously contribute to weight gain. And then if I have insulin that's basically saying, hey, I'm going to store fat first, I'm going to make more fat cells. So therefore, I'm going to make more leptin. And instead of burning sugar, I'm going to bring sugar to the fat cells to store. And if I do put sugar into the regular muscle cells and brain cells and everything else to actually burn, I'm going to need more and more insulin to do it. Leptin gets really, really dysregulated. So leptin resistance can also develop because of chronic inflammation. And when we're inflamed, it causes damage to the receptors for leptin in the brain. And that leads to this inability to respond to the signals from the hormones. So inflammation can cause damage to the hypothalamus, which is the receiver of that message. And it's responsible for regulating your other hormones, all of them, and regulating especially hunger and metabolism. What's interesting is leptin resistance isn't only related to weight gain and obesity. It's also related to other metabolic disorders, type 2 diabetes. I know type 2 diabetes often occurs with obesity, but it's not necessarily a guarantee. And there's plenty of type 2 diabetics who are weight normative within their height weight ratio, but may actually still have metabolic disorders, obviously, like type 2 diabetes and leptin resistance. It's also going to be more likely to occur with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is fat in the liver, otherwise known as NAFLD, 
which is a burgeoning medical problem that is going to bankrupt our medical system if we don't come up with a way to repair the liver without having to do human transplantation. Because right now, if your liver falls apart and can't function anymore, the only thing we can do is transplant. And right now, the tide is such that we won't have enough healthy livers to be able to transplant. We also have cardiovascular disease. And here's the two things that I find. I harp on sleep because I think sleep and stress are the primary dominant contributors lifestyle-wise to why we get so dysregulated. And if I have sleep apnea or upper airway resistance or just poor sleep scheduled, you know, weird sleep schedules, all of those things, and I don't get enough sleep or I have insomnia, leptin resistance is going to be there. And some of the highest leptin levels I have seen are in people that don't have metabolic disease, aren't diabetic, don't have fatty liver yet or cardiovascular disease yet, but they have incredibly high leptin levels. I've seen as high as like 125 because they're getting four hours of sleep a night. Now, the most insidious part of that is often they're the person that says that they don't need that much sleep because they love to run on their stress chemistry. But it is very hard to lose weight with a leptin level of 125 because your body is fighting to put it back on. So definitely sleep is going to have a significant part of that. Chronic sleep deprivation, upper air resistance, all of those. We have to get seven to eight hours of quality sleep. I'm not talking about being in bed playing with your phone. I mean, asleep, asleep. The other hormone that often plays with leptin that we talk about a lot is obviously cortisol, right? Because that's what gets produced when we're under prolonged protracted stress. And if you remember correctly, cortisol is a hormone produced by the adrenal glands. And it is part of the stress response and it increases your heart rate, increases blood pressure and actually mobilizes blood sugar into the bloodstream so you can run. So whenever cortisol goes up, your blood sugar is going to go up with it and along with insulin. And cortisol also regulates the immune system and metabolism. But when cortisol levels are too high for too long, it can obviously lead to a lot of health problems. And one of the ways that cortisol negatively impacts the health is it actually interacts with leptin resistance. So when a person's under chronic stress, the body's going to produce more and more cortisol, and this is going to lead to an increase in appetite cravings for like high calorie food. All of a sudden you want sugar or you want salty stuff. Like in my case, I'm going to want a ton of salty stuff, salty, spicy. Then that increased cortisol level is going to contribute to developing insulin resistance, which then increases the body fat. And then as the body fat increases, now we've got more leptin. So you can see this sort of circular sort of pattern where these things feed off each other. And so then again, the body isn't going to respond to leptin appropriately. Leptin resistance can also cause an inability to feel full after eating. So we know genetically, and you've heard me talk about my genes, you've heard me talk about genetics with the CEO of the DNA company, Kashif Khan, and we know that there's some genes that can heavily affect our ability to feel satisfied, full, and feel hunger, right? There's several genes there. There's melanocortin-4, there's FTO. Those genes very much play into satiety and hunger. But leptin resistance, regardless of what those genes are doing, can lead to an inability to feel full after eating. So obviously what will happen is you're going to eat until you feel like you're full up to your chin, and then you almost overeat, and then you feel uncomfortable because you just don't get that message. All of these things obviously contribute to chronic disease, But the other thing is, is when we have a lot of cortisol circulating, it leads to muscle mass destruction, right? So we break down muscle mass. Cortisol is what we call catabolic breakdown. Your male hormones, your androgens, which we make a lot of as women, your androgens are anabolic. They are building. 
So if I have a high level of cortisol, it's also going to decrease my muscle mass, which is going to make more fat on my body relative to my body total weight. Then I'm going to be more leptin resistant, insulin resistant, and cortisol is going to drive all of that. And cortisol affects the sensitivity of the receptors to leptin in the brain. So your receptor for leptin at the hypothalamus, your receptors for dopamine in the frontal cortex, all of those receptors that are so important for your body to respond to, to make you feel good, to respond to your environment, get beat up by cortisol. So high levels of cortisol decreases the number of receptors and beats up the ones that are there. So we don't respond appropriately to the signals. So when we look at that, we go, okay, that's bad. We know that that's bad. What's happening to leptin when we're in perimenopause and menopause? Because of course, if one hormone's out of whack, what happened to the symphony? They are all out of whack because they're going to try and bring things into harmony, even if harmony isn't ideal for what you see in the mirror. So hormonal changes that occur in perimenopause and menopause can and do affect hormone levels, particularly leptin. During menopause, the level of estrogen and obviously all the other sex hormones, progesterone and testosterone decline, which can lead to an increase in body fat and an increase in the production of leptin. And then we can obviously get that leptin resistance. But it's not uncommon for women to gain weight during menopause as that decrease in estrogen occurs. That's going to increase the body fat stores. And on average, a woman gains at least 5 to 10% of their body weight. And so adds an additional 5 to 10% of their body weight as they go through menopause on average. And it's part of it is because we lose up to 5% of our metabolic rate every decade after 20. So we're already losing some metabolic speed and efficiency. And then obviously, as estrogen levels start to decline at menopause, we're going to see it. So if we think about it, so if we're losing 5% of our metabolic rate and we have a 10% or more weight gain just for going through menopause, that means a 150-pound woman is going to pick up 15 pounds doing the exact same dang thing she was doing the day damn before. So that decline in estrogen also then leads into a loss of muscle mass because estrogen, when it's balanced with the other hormones, actually helps us keep muscle mass. And of course, when you're in perimenopause, it's actually this wild fluctuation and that estrogen dominance that tends to manage and kind of be that entire decade before you go through menopause for many of us, not everybody, but for many of us, estrogen is just high relative to everything for almost a decade. When that's happening, we become more insulin resistant. So, you know, estrogen is very much like the three little bears. You want it to be just right, not too high, not too low. And so we're going to have more leptin dysregulation when we go through menopause and perimenopause. What are some of the things that we can do to maybe help reverse leptin resistance, right? So as the first hormone we're talking about today, you know, obviously it can be frustrating and you could be doing kind of everything that you think is right to particularly address it. But lifestyle changes are absolutely what's going to probably drive this more than anything. Obviously, anything we can do to improve insulin sensitivity and metabolic activity is going to be good. So obviously processed foods, sugars, refined carbohydrates are going to contribute to leptin resistance because those foods are crap and you shouldn't be eating it. They're complete and utter crap. There's no way around it. There is no health food that's processed, okay? Even if it's a kind bar, it's a bunch of nuts stuck together by a bunch of syrup, right? So a bunch of sugars. So it is processed. So anytime we've done something to it, it's processed. Right. So whole foods, vegetables, fruits, lean proteins, nuts in their natural form, those things can help because they've got plenty of fiber. They don't have all the processed sugars. 
and they don't cause the hormone dysregulation that those other processed foods do. So what's interesting is for leptin in particular, if we kind of exclude the other hormones, what the research shows is that leptin resistance often is not improved when we do a lot of haphazard eating, i.e. fasting without control and thought. So the person that skips meals all the time, and nowadays they'll, they'll kind of you know, gloss over it and say that they're fasting, but really what they're doing is kind of haphazard eating and waiting until they're starving to eat. So if you look at the literature, it shows that smaller meals more often throughout the day is helpful for leptin, right? Because again, you don't want the brain to be getting messages that it needs to store fats. So the idea is that you would eat maybe four meals. I wouldn't go above four meals, but four smaller meals throughout the day. And actually having adequate protein is really, really important. So if that was the only hormone dysregulated, that would probably be the right avenue to go down. Haphazard fasting or inappropriate fasting or doing, you know, a 16-8 fast where somebody's fasting for 16 hours and eating in an eight-hour window. If you're doing that every day and you've been doing it and for some reason or another, it's not working for you because it doesn't work for you. And it is probably because leptin's way out of control. We have to kind of keep that metabolism somewhat stoked because what happens when you get really hungry and you've got leptin resistance, you're more likely to eat something that's not as good for you. And then you're more likely to continue to eat past your hunger. And it's important, again, like I said, to eat healthy fats and proteins because they help stabilize the blood sugar, which helps kind of stabilize insulin and does help stabilize leptin as well. And obviously the refined carbs. I've already beat that horse and drug it behind the car. Don't do it anymore. Right. Not saying you can't ever eat them, but they are not a food that should be in your diet on a regular basis. The other thing is leptin needs regular exercise and because it helps insulin sensitivity and can help with weight loss. But again, leptin resistance, if the exercise is too extreme and we've got high cortisol because of it, maybe you're doing five days a week of high intensity intervals at 50 minutes because you really love it and that stokes your energy and gives your ego a boost that may not be the best exercise because of what it's doing to your hormone regulation. But it is important to get some moderate exercise and give your stress chemistry somewhere to go, which allows it to burn off, but we don't want to overdo it. And then, you know, there's some things that are out there that can help a little bit with leptin resistance. There's several products that have been marketed over the year with, I would say, somewhat sketchy results, honestly. Very small study sizes, not replicated multiple times. If I had supplements that rocked the house on every single one of these hormone problems, you would know. And I'm working on several different ones at this point, but this is a complex problem and it's not a single pill that can do it. We have to address it in multiple ways. We know that things like ginger, cayenne, green tea extracts can help increase thermogenesis, which is basically the heat in which your body heats up to to burn because we actually thermogenesis is a heating activity. So think of your body as a little bit of an oven and every single mitochondria is generating energy. So those things, those warming herbs can help possibly create a little more thermogenesis. And some research has shown that maybe they might be able to help leptin. Probiotics that help regulate the gut flora may in turn affect leptin levels. That's a huge area of research, right? There's so much that goes on in the gut and particularly with our hormones. And as you guys probably know, if you've been listening to me, My dissertation is looking at hormone metabolism in the gut and the microbiome. So, you know, deep diving into that, we have a long way to go. But the truth is, is our microbes probably have a lot more control over our body than we do. So anything that can affect the gut and make it healthier is going to make it healthier. Your omega-3s, because they can reduce inflammation and improve insulin sensitivity, can help. 
Vitamin D can help improve and also chromium, which helps regulate blood sugar levels, has some moderate sign that it helps because it might help the blood sugar regulation. Leptin, obviously, like I said, tells your hypothalamus I need to store fat. The more fat you have, the more leptin you make. The more leptin you make, the more the brain doesn't get any other message other than store fat. Now, there's another really, really huge hormone called ghrelin. So ghrelin is the hormone that stimulates the process of gluconeogenesis. So you've heard me talk about gluconeogenesis because I believe that this is heavily amplified in women as we go through menopause, you know, perimenopause and menopause. And then for some of us, I think it's even more amplified. If you caught my conversation with Dr. Amy Horneman, the thyroid fixer, we both had a lot of experiences early in our life with people that were bodybuilders and figure athletes. And what's interesting is the ones that did those really extreme diets and things like that to get on stage for one day to earn a trophy. They went through all these things that were really challenging to the body. And they did a lot of things dietarily that sort of pushed this sort of metabolic derangement, I believe, that we see where the body sort of gets primed to go through gluconeogenesis. So what gluconeogenesis really is, It's the production of glucose from non-carbohydrate sources like amino acids and fatty acids. So you go, what? (laughs) So your liver has the capacity through ghrelin and ghrelin's message to take amino acids, which are proteins broken down and circulating fatty acids, which are fats that have been mobilized into your bloodstream and make glucose out of them. The reason why we do that is we have to do that because we have cells like red blood cells that require glucose. So we have an absolute need for our body to be able to create glucose in light of not having it because carbohydrate content is truly not an essential food, right? It's not an essential nutrient. Our body can survive without taking in carbohydrate content because we can produce it through the liver. And ghrelin is the hormone that does that and it stimulates the release of growth hormone from the pituitary gland. So then growth hormone in turn stimulates the liver to produce glucose through that process. So essentially, your liver gets the message from ghrelin that, hey, I need to go make glucose, regardless of maybe what's going on out in the bloodstream. When the body's in a fasted state, the insulin levels should be low. And then there's levels of glucagon, which are high, which also promotes gluconeogenesis, right? And so ghrelin increases the release of glucagon, which acts as an opposing hormone to insulin. That stimulates the liver to produce glucose from stored glycogen or amino acids like your protein from your muscles or fatty acids circulating. And so between ghrelin stimulating glucagon and glucagon basically starting the gluconeogenesis process, we could just have more production of glucose in the liver. And then that basically leads to more breakdown of amino acids from your muscles and other things. And this is part of the body's starvation state to protect you when there's not enough carbs. What happens if this is happening all the time, right? So it's important to understand that if I've got ghrelin basically increasing hypothalamic production of growth hormone and glucagon, which stimulates the liver to make glucose, even if I don't need glucose because I've got plenty of body fat that's sitting out in the bloodstream waiting to get burned because I'm insulin resistant, And then my body thinks I need to store more fat because leptin is telling my brain to do that. I have got a triple threat. So basically, what happens when we're perimenopausal and menopausal women? During menopause, the production of estrogen and progesterone obviously decreases significantly. Studies show that during menopause, what happens? We get increases in ghrelin. 
Yay. This increase in ghrelin can lead to an increased feelings of hunger and craving for high calorie food. So if all of a sudden you're like, I really want a cheeseburger and fries instead of that salad, this can make it much more challenging because ghrelin increases hunger and it makes it more challenging for you to make a really good choice at food, particularly if you've been waiting until you're starving to eat. And that decrease in estrogen during menopause also leads to that insulin insensitivity. And then obviously we get more fat gain, more leptin, and we get this sort of feedback loop. So that increase in ghrelin levels during menopause is going to cause basically ghrelin resistance, right? So we have some level of ghrelin resistance, which then stimulates glucagon, which is the opposing activity of insulin. And the body starts to produce glucose out of proteins, essentially amino acids and fats. So what do you do when you have all of this? What this tells you is that weight loss particularly are problematic as a picture when you're ignoring all of these hormone levels and assuming that it's just something as simple as eat less calories and work out more because we have all of these hormones that are contributing to dysregulation that basically are all in different ways acting upon a very ancient requirement for our bodies to be able to hold on to body weight so we don't die. You think about it that way. We have to start addressing all of this. So what could be happening, particularly with ghrelin and glucagon in the liver that you might be doing to contribute to this, right? So I alluded to, I think sometimes this happens in women as we're going through menopause. I think we get a bigger dysregulation of ghrelin and glucagon. When we age, right, there's a decrease in that liver sensitivity to insulin and then glucagon, which increases the production of glucose by the liver out of other sources. Obviously, that can increase the development of type 2 diabetes. But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I started looking at it from my experience of being around and in that sort of bodybuilding world where I was eating in a huge amount of protein. But at the time, I was lifting a lot. I was eating adequate protein for the amount of muscle synthesis that was required for what I was doing. I mean, I was lifting very heavy weights and I was lifting daily. So I was doing a lot. And so I ate a lot of protein shakes and I took free form amino acids that are not bound to other amino acids and protein structures. So free form amino acids are in your proteins and they are the building blocks. So if you basically break all the protein down into their tiny building blocks, that's what an amino acid is. So when free-form amino acids are consumed, they're actually taken up by the liver where they're used to produce glucose through gluconeogenesis. Here's what I think is happening. This is just my hypothesis. I don't know this for sure. In my case, I was eating a lot of protein. So I was eating probably 120 grams of protein a day. And I was also using some things like glutamine and free-form amino acids for recovery and muscle building. What we do know from some of the studies that have come out over the last two years is depending on how you eat your protein, Throughout the day, you may be stimulating what they call first-pass liver metabolism. Let's say I'm 30 years old and I'm lifting weights and I'm lifting kind of heavy and I get home and I do a post-workout free-form amino acid because I'm trying to help my muscles build. Well, I do want an insulin response. I want free-form amino acids. I want proteins so my body can go use those to rebuild the muscle. But I also need an insulin response to do that because it's going to also draw glycogen into the muscle so it can get stored for the next day. Those two efforts are actually what help you build muscle, right? So you need them to do that. But if I have the ability to convert some of those amino acids like alanine, glutamine, aspartate into glucose, I might be stimulating a heck of a lot of that as a 45 or 50-year-old woman 
eating a ton of protein and doing protein shakes and protein bars throughout the day because I may not be working out hard enough to get the right muscle protein synthesis message. There was a study that came out in the fall of last year, I believe, and they were looking at, let's say, you know, they called it middle-aged Americans, but, you know, let's say it was, you know, your 45 to 60-year-olds. And what they found was that if they broke their fast with a large bolus of protein, right? So not 20 grams, not 25, but a larger bolus of protein, let's say 40 grams or more. What would happen is it would bypass this first pass liver, which is probably stimulating gluconeogenesis. And they saw more muscle protein synthesis. So the body was literally going, I got enough protein that I don't even need to mess with the liver. I'm going to just bypass that and build muscle. And that the last meal of the day, if that had a larger bolus of protein, right? So not 20, but more protein. So we got more muscle protein synthesis and it sort of bypassed this gluconeogenesis preference. What I think happens in a lot of women in particular that have been doing high protein, low carb for a long time is, you know, they'll have their breakfast and they'll have like, let's say two eggs, some turkey bacon and some avocado, which, you know, two eggs is going to be about 14 grams turkey bacon, if you're lucky, that's going to be another seven. So you might have about 21 grams of protein, right? That's their breakfast. And then later on in the day, they have a protein bar. And then later on in the day, they have a salad with chicken and maybe some hard boiled eggs. Again, 20 to 25 grams of protein. And then they have some other sort of something like a snack after their workout, which is a protein shake. So they're trickling in this protein throughout the day. What I think is happening is we get this first class protein metabolism those amino acids, as they come out of the stomach, go straight into the liver and in many cases, maybe going through gluconeogenesis, particularly if you already have leptin resistance, a dysregulated ghrelin, which means glucagon is going to be turned on. Those glycogen stores are going to get full, right, in the muscle only if you can get that amino acid store all the way to the muscle tissue. And same thing, the glucose all the way to the muscle tissue after working out. So Free-form amino acids, when combined, particularly with a high-calorie diet, can increase gluconeogenesis and lead to weight gain, right? So some people need it, some people don't. But the problem is, is a lot of women in this age group may be getting recommendations from trainers and other people that are not 50 or, you know, 45 going through perimenopause that are in a different metabolic state that don't have this problem. We have to be very careful about how we're eating and what we're eating. And especially if you're doing all the right things that I did for almost a decade. As a nutritionist, I had bought the party line. I needed to eat high protein, low carb. And I did that. And I ate, you know, a ton of protein, but it trickled in throughout the day. You know, I did a little bit here and a little bit there. And what the studies show is that when you were young, like a little kid, you can trickle it in like that. But when you get older, it's going to go to gluconeogenesis first. So you could be doing the wrong things with your diet by stimulating ghrelin and glucagon, and then obviously the production of glucose out of your amino acids. What is the good summary of all this? So we discussed three major hormones today, three and a half, I'd say four. So leptin, leptin resistance. We discussed ghrelin and ghrelin's impact on glucagon and glucagon's ability to tell your liver to basically make glucose out of other things like proteins and fats. And how all of these play together, particularly if you already have insulin resistance, and especially if you have high cortisol levels. So again, I always keep harping on the hormone symphony and what's really happening. You cannot just fix one of these. You have to address all of them. Now, you don't have to be perfect at all of them because that's impossible and that's a crazy thought. 
but I have to, I have to do some things that touch all of them. So as kind of a summary, insulin resistance is when insulin, the hormone that regulates metabolism, become resistant to the story and the sound. They're no longer listening and the pancreas keeps making more and more insulin to try and lower blood sugar levels and you become resistant to it. And then the brain also is resistant to it. And your body starts to store fat first rather than burning glucose, which leads to uh, basically more gluconeogenesis, right? So if we're insulin resistant, we're going to have more gluconeogenesis. Hormonal imbalances such as cortisol, too much or too little growth hormone, because again, growth hormone can drive glucagon, right? From the efforts of ghrelin, because ghrelin can stimulate growth hormone. That rocks the house when you're 10 and you want to get taller. It does not rock the house when you're five foot three at 53. We don't want a lot of growth hormone when I don't need it, right? Because if I'm not growing, I'm going to be getting fatter. Thyroid hormones can also affect gluconeogenesis and all of this too. So if I have issues with my thyroid, I may also be stimulating gluconeogenesis as well. And if I'm leptin resistant, it's highly likely that I'm insulin resistant and also doing gluconeogenesis. And chronic stress, I believe, is the uh, bane of our existence and one of the biggest reasons why it is so hard to turn off these mechanisms. Because you got to remember, stress chemistry and cortisol is our body's ability to basically perceive itself in a safety state. And it's your body's way to respond to stressors and our lives are just too stressful. And it tells the body basically we're starving. Here's a bummer. Excess alcohol consumption can also disrupt glucose metabolism and increase gluconeogenesis, particularly at night. So if you're having that glass or two of wine at night and you can't figure out why you aren't losing weight, despite the fact that you controlled for calories and the sugar calories of the wine, it's because it's not about the sugar. It's what the wine does to your metabolic activity and particularly the activity of gluconeogenesis. Obviously, if you have problems with your liver, if you've got fatty liver or if you've got high elevated liver enzymes or other things that indicate that the liver is struggling, the liver is a metabolic engine. And if it is taxed and saturated with fat or just struggling to detoxify because you're not good at it, it's going to make it all worse. If you're doing medications like glucocorticoids or your, your, your steroids and things like that and other drugs that may stimulate the production of glucose through the liver, through gluconeogenesis, that's going to make all that worse too. The other thing is, is if you're doing stuff like free-form amino acids, and don't get me wrong, I, I use free-form amino acids, for instance, in our osteoporosis patients that need to put on muscle mass and are often under-eating protein, I'm going to use them because I need them, but I'm not going to use them in somebody that's struggling to lose weight. You have to be careful with those. You want to make sure that you're not necessarily stimulating that side. And so, you know, the big thing here is if you're insulin resistant, you're likely leptin resistant. And if you're leptin resistant, you're likely have dysregulated ghrelin, increased glucagon, and increased gluconeogenesis. And all of those probably stem back to our stress, our sleep, and our lifestyle. And whether we're eating appropriately and not signaling the body that we're starving. These hormones contribute to all the other hormones we've already talked about and the other mitochondrial activities that cause weight gain in women and men, honestly. But let's face it, we're talking about ladies today. Again, what do you do about it? We start addressing the lifestyle. We start addressing the consumption of food and how we consume it and the timing of it. And then, like I said, I think sleep is paramount and I think stress relief is paramount. And you can't do stress relief and meditation and still get four hours of sleep. It just doesn't work. Believe me, I've tried. 
I would love to only need three hours of sleep and still have the same metabolic effect as if I had eight. I could get a lot done. That's what we got to focus on. And that's what we have to pay attention to. I hope you found this um, not only informative, but helpful because no one really talks about leptin and ghrelin and glucagon and how they really are impacted. You know, like I said, insulin gets sort of the heyday, but if you're doing all the right things for insulin and it's not working, it's because these other ones are off. So thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. Thank you for joining me this week. If this was helpful for you, give me a thumbs up. Please leave a review. I love reading them. And if you've got suggestions, I'd love to hear that too. If you didn't like it, you can go ahead and tell me too. That's all right. And if you think somebody could benefit from this show, please share it with a friend. And I'll be back next week with more information on Menopause Mastery. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here, and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love, and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD, and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 